Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z. So glad to have you with us today. We are now in season three, looking at the nature of stress. We're going to dive into this ancient system and the way it works and plays out in our lives and talk with some truly amazing people who have knowledge and insights to help us find our way through the dance of life and the dance of stress that will have heart and truth and love in them. It's going to be amazing, I promise. Let's do this. Enjoy. Here we go. All right, welcome back to the next episode of the How Humans Work podcast. Here we are still in season three, working on matters of stress. My next guest is Damien Hartfield. Damien is a friend, dear friend, whom I've known for nearly a couple decades now, and we've had many occasion to dive deep into the conversations like the one we're having today on this particular episode. A note to the listener, this is an adult conversation, as Damien shares some of the challenging parts of his own story growing up in Watts. So please be advised of that and have discretion about who you listen to the show with. Without further ado, please enjoy this next episode, episode 33 on the How Humans Work podcast with Damien Hartfield, wishing for an earthquake. Damien Hartfield, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am really glad you're here with us today. I'm glad to be here, Jeff. Thanks for the invite. Appreciate you. I know you've been thinking about doing this show for a little while and that you've just been waiting until you felt ready to have the conversation we're about to have. So I just want to give you a chance to say a little bit about talking about your process of getting ready to, to, to share your stories and, and, and get onto the podcast with me today. All right. Yes, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a long process. And as you say, it's been I've been I go I've been going through a lot. Not all bad, not all good, just life in general. And I had to get ready, you know what I'm saying, to open up because I never opened up like this before. I never opened up. Well, I had interviews and things with people and they didn't really go right the way I liked them because it was people that I guess I couldn't really trust because they didn't let me be a part of the editing process or nothing. And the final thing with two of them at least kind of had me in a jam and I didn't like that situation. So that's one of the reasons I hesitated. I did a thing with a reporter and he, he wrote a news article and everything, and it just wasn't to my likings. And I was referred to him by a friend. And I didn't I didn't like the way it came out all the way. I had some issues. So when me and you, since me and you've been talking, I was just hesitant because I had to get in the right mind state and know that, you know, your process match my process and that we can communicate and accomplish the goal that we're trying to accomplish as far as tell a story, interview, and communicate openly, honestly communicate because I don't have a problem with honest communication. I just got a problem with how people take it and portray it. If they portray it a certain way, that's not what I was trying to communicate. You know, so over the years, me and you've been talking and we did all kind of other things together too, with the camping, with the hiking, the backpacking, the training you gave me and Dewanovan on backpacking and Mendocino, we've been through a lot now, so you kind of see my process pretty good that I don't just jump into nothing. You know what I'm saying? If I can take my time, I'm going to take my time, but I'm prepared to jump in when I need to. So this was something I felt we didn't need to rush. And the time it approached now to where we worked it out, and now is the time. I'm here, and I'm glad for the standing invite. I appreciate it. 
appreciate your patience and you know you didn't push me too hard give me nothing for it uh-huh. it's it's good it worked out it's, it worked out so here here we sit and i've been through a lot you know especially over the past over the past year i've been through a lot personally and i made some changes in my life to where now i'm comfortable to open up and talk on this level because i was going through so much to where i wasn't really in the mood to open up and communicate but i'm there now and i mean like i said i made some drastic changes jeff in my life i made drastic changes and here i am to where i'm not worried about some things i used to be worried about you know what i'm saying i'm living a positive life i'm focused on family focused on the grandkids and a lot of stuff that i was doing i'm not doing no more at least to the extent that i was doing it in particularly one of them is like like being involved in a lot of people's lives in the way of doing intervention, gang intervention, and, you know, in that line of work and just in that line, that type of lifestyle, doing intervention, you learn people's secrets, you you pick up people's stress. And when you're dealing with how humans work, when you deal with other people's stress, you pick up their stress, and then it's, it's, it can be a heavy weight to carry sometimes. So I was carrying that weight, and it took me, like, about a year since September of 2022 last year, and this is July now, 23. So almost a year, I've been working it out, balancing out, letting go of that weight, and here I, I let it go. To I let it go to the point where I'm comfortable with working with a new phase of my life. One of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you on the show is because in our in our personal relationship, I've gotten a ton of value out of certain conversations and and one of them has been your work around gang intervention and and as you said the stress that comes along with that you know i i see you as mostly freelance i think you've been freelancing your work and your community support for probably for a good decade or longer one of the things i've always appreciated about your nature and the way you've approached the stories that you've told me perhaps some of them we'll get into today is the kind of intelligence you've brought into the situations and understanding how to work with the complex politics surrounding neighborhoods, gang affiliation, people's personal offenses, histories. So talk a little bit about the the dynamics of gang intervention to help other people, my listeners, everyone understand what are some of the realities that are there. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So dealing dealing with gang intervention, you're dealing with gangs, gang violence, gang lifestyle, and everything that goes along with that culture. You know what I'm saying? And in dealing with that, you're dealing with like dealing with the intervention part of it. That's what I was dealing with, mainly because when I got out, that was the opportunity I got to um I wasn't freestyling when I once I got out I got a job with a nonprofit organization and with the recreation center in the neighborhood in Watts in the Nixon Gardens where that was my paycheck. So I didn't have to worry about how I was gonna pay my bills and take care of my family. So I was doing it on a official level as a job and as a lifestyle and from my heart. So I'm good to say that, you know, I lived the I lived the time of my life when I was doing that work taking the good and the bad, as heavy as it was, as tough as it was, because I was also able to interact with some people in an honest way. 
and it was a lot of trust involved. So dealing with dealing with the gang intervention, you're dealing with with major trust issues because you're dealing with some stuff that's really with, that's really not legal. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's illegal to be a gang member. So doing that work, I'm dealing with people that's officially they they're officially illegal doing participating in illegal activity just because being a gang member is illegal according to California state law. Not to say that the people are illegal, but the status is illegal. So with that in mind, doing the gang intervention work, I worked with some people and we did we did a lot of stuff to balance things out. And one of the things we balanced out was 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 labeling people as gang members. So when I got out of jail in 2014, it was after multiple gang injunctions had been placed on neighborhoods. Was that 2004 or 14? 2004. And the gang, a couple of injunctions had been passed on neighborhoods and the Nixon Gardens was one of the first and biggest gang injunctions that passed. And so I got out in that atmosphere of working against that program, the gang injunction and, you know, labeling gang members as terrorists and putting kids in that position, Generation X and, you know, making it all bad for the people that's in that lifestyle, not in that lifestyle, just in that environment. So during the gang intervention work, I was working with some people. We was blessed to be in position to to balance out what was being imposed on the neighborhoods and on the communities and what was being imposed through the gang injunctions and the state labeling the young generation as terrorists. And no, no, this is what they were saying at that time. They were super predators. So we, we felt, I feel, and we felt that we brought balance to that situation because in our gang intervention work, especially from the Nixon Gardens is that we're not going to work with the kids in the community and people in the community that's caught up in that lifestyle and label them as something that's illegal. So we specifically counteracted that label and that imposition of something that's not right. So when they were structuring the gang intervention work, we was crucial to that process because instead of labeling kids as gang members, they just say, for instance, they want us to label them in degrees as far as an active gang member, a gang associate, a gang affiliate and different things. So if somebody would have been labeled as an active gang member, then that's the worst you can be. So in the future, that can be used against you. So that was our thing. We're not going to do that to these kids that we're trying to work with and help. We need to come up with another definition. So what we came up with is that they're not gang members. We're not dealing with people as gang members. We're dealing with humans. And dealing with humans, we're not going to label them as something that's illegal, especially if they're not even illegal, because we're dealing with kids all the way from six years old on up to 100 years old, however old a person can be that's in the gang culture, in the gang community, gang-infested community. So we're not going to label people that we interact with in a negative way, in an illegal way, in a criminal way, or nothing, no matter what their lifestyle is. We're not going to play a part in putting that label on them. So what the agreement was and coming to terms with this definition with, with the city of Los Angeles, recreation and parks, the gang intervention community, the mayor's office and everything, we, we came with the agreement that we're going to label them at-risk youth. And what qualified them as at-risk youth was that they lived in an at-risk community. 
in any community in the ghetto is at risk. So any kid or any human in an at-risk community is an at-risk individual. So we labeled them at that as high-risk, at-risk youth or at-risk people that we was working with. So in the gang intervention work, that was the position I was coming from when I work with people. Different people do different things from their position, but me and the people I was working with, that's where we was at. We dealing with at-risk youth and anybody qualifies for our services as gang intervention workers. Because that was another thing with the politics of it and the bureaucracy of it was that if these people don't meet certain requirements as being an active gang member or an affiliate or an associate, then we couldn't even provide them services under contracts that the city would give. So we were like, no, nah, everybody need our services. And coming from where we come from, if we got to limit our peoples based on putting them in categories like that, then we don't even need to do the work with y'all. So that's where my my freelance type of work come from. And that makes a lot of sense to reject that imposition. As you said, they were imposing it. And it brings up a kind of tension that I've heard you speak to before between the city, the police, even the uh, so social services that would serve a community like Nickerson Gardens in Watts. And that inherent tension that is there between that external agenda of how they want to frame the situation and what really serves a local community and understands the nuances that are in there. Can you speak to that a little bit about that tension between having a community that's already at risk and then how the larger organization of society tends to view that at-risk community and how they are put another kind of indirect or sometimes very direct pressure on the lives of the people living there? Yeah, the tension, the tension that it, that exists because of that is is real, is serious, and it's thick. It's a thick tension because because it it, shape, it shapes the interaction of the people in the community, and in shaping that interaction, the politics of it interferes with with the um, it interferes with the type of service you give to the people, the type of interactions you give the type of results you receive from the work that you do so the tension is that like for instance working at the recreation center and doing gang intervention work it was a rule we couldn't feed the kids right if we take them on trips or something they have to bring their own lunch they have to whatever to eat or starve because according to the bureaucracy we can't that's not our job to feed the kids especially out of our own pockets but we we was in a unique situation. Like we come from a community where we really know the people. We really know the kids. We really know their parents. We really know so much about them. Like we know their situation. So we got hungry kids. We gonna feed them out of our pockets. And just if we get in trouble, we just in trouble. So that's a tension right there. We're under threat of losing our job if we do something like feed the kids. And then the flip side to that, on the other side of the coin, is law enforcement. They would have a football team, right? A little league football team, Pop Warner type stuff, teaching the kids how to play organized sports. And the same kids that they would work with on a football team would come to the recreation center and tell us like, oh, can I can I get $5 because I don't have no food, I don't have no money for lunch, and I'm about to go play football. So we would ask like, they don't feed y'all? But we already knew that they didn't because we couldn't. They told us we couldn't, but we did. So by them asking us to go over there, asking us for $5 to go over there and play football with law enforcement, but they don't have no nothing to eat and the police won't feed them. 
So it's like, damn, that's another tension. That's the flip side of the tension. Like, damn, we're doing the work. We're from here. We're doing it and everything. And, you know, we'll take out of our own pocket and feed the kids. But now they get a budget for everything that we can't even get because now they're doing community work as the football teams. What we usually would do now, they're doing policing, community work. They're doing everything. And even the nonprofit organizations doing community work have to get, like, like vouched by them, like, just say a, a big foundation want to give a nonprofit organization and watch some resources, they go to the law enforcement and say, is this organization really doing the work? Or the mayor's office, is this organization really doing the work in the community? So now we become competition because we need resources, but they have to vouch for it. Or if they say, no, they're not good because they have this person working for them, so they don't deserve it. Or this person is not a good guy. So now the tension is that we can't even really get the resources we need because they fighting for the same resources and they the figureheads to say who gets it or not. So now they get it, but they won't even feed the kids. And then what they do learn from the kids, they use it against them. You know, the police, the law enforcement officers that work with the kids on a program like that would take the kids on trips, take them to play football and everything. But when the kids that's, eight, nine years old, 10, 11, 12 years old in three to five years when that 12 year old is 15, 16 years old with a court case, that same officer that taught him football is on the stand saying, yeah, I know him and I know why he's a gang member because playing football, he was this type of person and he grew up with hanging around the wrong people. Now the law enforcement officer is on stand, on the stand as a gang expert testifying against the kid that they pretty much helped raise. So that's a tension. And we can't even really counteract that because if we go too hard and pull kids from them and say, no, nah, I don't do this because that officer right there is known for this. He's the gang expert in the community. So he might take you to play football today in the next couple of years. You might end up in a passenger seat of a stolen car or something. And he's going to be the one saying that you need a gang enhancement because you hang with gang members. And we couldn't get a conversation going on it because now it turns into a bad situation. So that's a hell of a tension that we have to deal with. It's like it's dangerous to be honest at some level and to be truthful because there's uh, multiple agendas and risks that come along with the politics and the purse strings and the, uh, I mean, I'm imagine growing up in Nickerson, it's just, there's going to be a certain amount of your friends who you were with the elementary school who also just end up getting, and you know them already. So you're already associated with them, whether they choose the gang life or they don't choose the gang life. And so I imagine it's a very difficult experience growing up in an environment like that, where there's all sorts of subtle and overt rules around just being able to be yourself. Honestly. Yeah. It's, 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 it's serious, man. It's serious. And, it, and it's a tough reality to live in, to exist in. Because especially when you get older, after you go through everything you go through and you get a little older, you get a little age under your belt and you want to help whether you cause harm or not in the community. You want to help because there's some people that never cause harm in the community. And when they get older, they want to help. But there's some of us who have caused harm in the community been to jail and suffered and paid our consequences or paid our price to society where we learned some things about ourselves and had a chance to sit down and think. So we want to give back in a good way and try to, you know, correct some of the wrongs we did as individuals to the collective 
and 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 it's hard to do it because we are already stigmatized as something bad. We already labeled as uh, you you did this in the community. You was this type of person, or you have this reputation. And in having that reputation, whatever it took to earn it, you always got to carry that baggage. And they always put it on you, no matter how good you be. So it makes it makes it a hell of a, a hell of a reality to live in to want to help. Yeah, and that's something I did want to talk about how difficult it is when the very association of gang life or affiliation with a gang is illegal and then you can't talk about it. There's no way to really work through it that there is this difficult silence and bearing of things that don't have a real place for healing or outlet that goes along with having been through a gang journey that there's no, and there's very little ways of reconciling the harms. And it's something that uh, most people just have to walk with, with no salve, with no solution in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. See, because we come, we, we, we come up in a way where I want to keep saying they're legal because that's what the state and the government label it as through the gang injunctions and everything else, you know, the terrorism, the local the domestic terrorism status of a gang member and all that. So that's why I want to keep emphasizing illegal. It's illegal to be that officially, but unofficially like, like what you're doing, we talking about how humans work. So when we talking about how humans work officially or unofficially, we're talking about human lives and then talking about human lives, no matter how illegal it, how illegal it is, according to the state or the system, we still humans. So the problem, the problem is like, like in my work, I don't, I have worked with, um, with veterans and I did some good work with them, with some veterans because it helped me understand some things about myself. So like at 15 years old, I got shot. Barely turned 15. I got shot February 1988. Turned 15 January 1988. I was born January 20th, 1973. So at 15, I was shot already. And I was shot because I was looking for trouble. So I don't even blame nobody for shooting me. Even though when I was younger, I, the thought was, man, these grown-ass men shooting at us kids like teenagers. And they come shooting at us. But when I thought about it, like, nah, we was asking for that because we chased some people before we got shot. And most likely those same, same people we chased is who came back and found us and shot us. Me and one of my friends got hit. And that's war. That's warfare. You know? And it happened on the other side of a hill that we called Hamburger Hill. And on, on Hamburger Hill was where we was, you know, at 14, 13, 15 years old, we was exercising our warrior spirit, which was illegal. So I'm not saying totally like on the state to say that it was illegal. Like we, we was doing some illegal shit too. So not placing the blame, like it's all the state label us this and label us that. Like some right is right. Wrong is wrong. Basically. That's how I live. So at 15, like living like that, getting shot, going through things I was going through, getting shot at, coming close to being killed, all kinds of stuff, getting chased, getting caught, getting beat, getting jumped by people, jumping people. All that stuff is a war. And we get in it young. And being in it so young, 
we don't have nobody really teaching us how to deal with it. So now at 18 and 19, some years later, I'm like a veteran in the war, but still active in it, though. So I'm serving active duty in a war that's not sanctioned. And this is I came to this conclusion talking to veterans and hearing their pain because they had talked to me at times like in Mendocino. I talked to veterans up there at times that didn't know that I was an ex-gang member. So they was just telling me their story and telling me their pain because they felt me or they trusted me. And in listening to them, I, I came I came to the conclusion like we really the same people, just fighting a different kind of war. And in fighting that different kind of war, they can talk about the issue. The vet the veterans from the stand the, from the military, they can go get counseling, they can go get help, they can go get therapy, they can even just talk about what they've been through. And that's because they was parts of sanctioned wars. And I, I look at the gang wars as unsanctioned wars because we're the illegal ones. We're the domestic terrorists, even though we're not even really fighting against nobody else but each other, but ourselves. We still get labeled as terrorists. And that's not to say that it's right that we fight only against ourselves, that we should go fight other people. And at times we have as far as, you know, other organizations and other things, but for the most part, we're just killing ourselves and shooting ourselves. And it's not, it wasn't sanctioned. So we have to grow with that. We have to live with it. We have to become men with it. We have to become adults with it. And we have to process it within, with that silence that you mentioned. You know, we have to stay silent about it. We couldn't ever talk to nobody. I can't, I, let me tell you something personal, Jeff. I still jump in my sleep, but I don't know it though. Sometimes I do, but most of the time I don't know it. But my wife would tell me that I jump in my sleep like something is happening. And I never know what's happening because I wake up and I don't remember it. And that's the silence. You know, I can't talk about it. It's something going on in there that I can't even talk about to myself because I don't even know what's happening. I don't know what I'm dreaming about. But it must be something Mm -hmm. if I'm jumping all the time in my sleep like something is happening. And I know some dreams that I used to have. And they wasn't good. But I, I can't talk about it. You know, so we suppress it. So that's the difference in in this situation. We can't we we become old and we just we heal ourselves. We self medicate. And you know, I never was on drugs or nothing. Never been into that. Never been into drinking. I drink a little bit now, but I never been into like heavy drinking, depending on it to escape. For me, I'm gonna get sober as possible if I'm doing something. Balance my mind out and everything, and do what I gotta do. So. My self-medication was just thinking, like, I'm going to think hard enough and I'm going to deal with it and I'm going to try to figure out a balance out. So my silence helped me heal myself and rehabilitate myself. But it's a lot of people that can't do that. It's a lot of people that just got to hold it in and go crazy. It's a lot of people on drugs now going crazy. I ain't going to say going, well, however we want to say it. It's just a term, but it is what it is. People that's not in a right state of mind because of what they've been through and because of what they're going through, then the drugs just bring it out in certain ways. And that's the way we have to heal coming from that lifestyle, coming from that culture, that gang culture, have to internalize it and figure out how to survive it. But like you say, the other, the other side of the coin, we got military veterans that they can get help and they still can't deal with what they've been through. And for the most part, we, we deal with it because we don't even have no choice. But with these open, honest communications, like some of them that I had up in Mendocino, and I keep saying Mendocino because that's where we met at, and that was a big 
of work since I've been free a big part of my life. Yeah. Talk about Mendocino a little bit from your perspective. What's, what's Mendocino to you? Mendocino to me was, was that medicine for the soul. That's what Mendocino was for me. Medicine for my soul. I don't know what it was for everybody else, but it was medicine for my soul because it was, it's voluntary. That was good. Comparing it to prison, which was involuntary, but it was all men for the most part, grown men and some young men, teenagers that we would bring up there, but all men voluntary. So it was kind of like prison, but not prison because it was voluntary and it was men, but it was positive men that had been through some things that work with the community, work with themselves. You know, up there we had doctors, lawyers, judges, politicians, actors, community organizers. We had so many different type of people, businessmen, so many different type of people in Mendocino that I met. So it was like a different type of prison. And the emphasis is on voluntary, though, because we're not forced to be there and it wasn't a bad situation. So being at Mendocino was medicine for my soul because I was able to deal with men that also been through things. And the best part of it that made it medicine for the soul was the open and honest communication that took place at Mendocino. That was the medicine for my soul because I was able to communicate with people openly and honestly and not worry about somebody trying to be fake and trying to manipulate somebody or trying to trick somebody into something. It was like we up there with grown men. The opposite part is that, you know, up there, grown men is crying in Mendocino. Because, you know, in prison, you get to crying, you're going to swing and stab somebody because you didn't show the soft side of you. But in Mendocino, you're going to scream and cry in the agreement. Remember, the main agreement at Mendocino is just no physical violence. Yeah. No matter how much you got to scream, cuss, fuss, cry, whatever, just no physical violence. And that was a beautiful agreement. That was another piece of the medicine for the soul to be a man, to know that I'm in this environment where I can process some things, go through what I'm going through, and watch other men go through it too. And in that process, learn how to deal with things in an open and honest way. And that's that's what Mendocino was about for me, man. Mendocino is a special place. Learned so much with it. Learned so much going there. I look forward to it every time I went. Even when I didn't go, it was all good. It was all like, it, it was a blessing. It was a blessing. You've spoken about prison a little bit. And my thought coming into the show was for you to share the transformation that happened for you when you were in prison. And the importance, I think you told me once about learning to become a communicator and the importance of proximity, like that there was a lot of people around you very close. And so your old strategies of silent action or just, you know, running by your own framework of how to, how to make it in life had to adjust. And it seemed to me that, and I think I've heard you say this, there was kind of Damien before and then there was Damien after, and we, we, we talked a little bit about the after part and we've talked a little bit about the before, but I really want to take a minute and make sure that you get a chance to tell that story of learning transformation, communication, and some of the events that happened there for you. Yeah, for me, for me in prison, the during prison part, the before prison, during prison, after prison part, the, the during prison part while in there. It was it was a good experience for me. I didn't want to be there. And I expressed that early in, in my time in the county jail before I even got to prison. 
my mother and my sisters and my family, they would bring my son to see me. And it was a little bit of kids stand up on the table, talk through the glass on the phone in the county jail. And when it was time to go from the visit, he would say, he would say, why are you not coming with us? Why you, why are you staying here? And I had to explain to him that I was there by force. Like if I could break out, I'll break out. If I could, if I could escape, I would escape. And this was my first part of being in jail in the county jail fighting my cases. And, but that helped me understand my position that I was there. And that's where I had to be while I was there. If I made it out, if I didn't make it out, I had to be there while I was there. So early in my prison journey, I knew it was somewhere I had to be. So I always considered myself a smart person. I just did stupid things. And for me, being a smart person doing stupid things for me means it's a difference between dumb, being dumb and being stupid. So being dumb is dealing with ignorance to me. And when you're dealing with ignorance, I mean, you just don't know. So you do dumb things because you don't know. I didn't do dumb things or bad things or nothing because I didn't know. I knew a lot because I was so quiet as a kid coming up. I always learned. I was always around older people and just people, period. And I was always learning. So I knew the difference between right and wrong. One of the first lessons of my life, most important lessons of my life, is the difference between right and wrong and choosing to do right. And, you know, being in a relationship with God consciousness, with the idea of God, you know, somebody watching over you, a higher power watching over you that you obligated to do right to, whether it's God or not, is on other people, how they believe. But I'm how I was brought up is a higher power being older now, whether we call it God or not, it, it is a higher power if we believe it. And I was raised believing it. So I knew the difference between right and wrong. And before prison, I learned a lot. So when I was in prison, I went through that situation with my son and having to tell him that I was there because I had to not coming home because I have to be in here I'm held in here I'm stuck in here but I put myself in here I played my part to get in here like whatever else played a part it played its part but I take responsibility for my part so being in prison going through that process that stage of my journey it was up close and personal being up close and personal I couldn't get away from everybody before prison, if I'm not feeling something, I can just get away. I could fade to the shadows or get away, go wherever, and be away from anybody and everybody before prison. But once I got in prison, it's like, damn, I'm stuck right here in this cage with five other people, three other people, seven other people, a hundred other people, whatever size the cage was, and however many people was in there. And that's where I had to be, up close and personal. I couldn't just fade to the back or get away from everything because everybody is in there shoulder to shoulder. And as they say in, in, in jail, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes you're in a line bunched up shoulder to shoulder with people on both sides. of you shoulder to shoulder, literally touching and you that close up close and personal in some situations in jail, but in all situations, you can't get away from the next person or the next people. I have two questions. First, how old were you when you went in? And then secondly, it sounded like you had the consciousness that there was a, a good possibility that you wouldn't actually survive your prison term. Like that was part of your awareness that it wasn't just, I had to make this number of years I had to endure in this situation, but I also had to survive with my life. Am I hearing that right? And yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So I went in in December, 93. Not yeah, yeah. December 93. So I was 20 years old. The next month, I turned 21 years old in jail, in the county jail. So I fought my case, my cases. I had a few of them, and I fought them up until 
so at some point in 1995. I don't remember the month, but I finished my cases in 95 and caught the chain and went to prison in 1995. So from 1995 to August 2004, I was released from prison. And the part about being in there, being in there not knowing if I was going to survive it, I didn't, I didn't look to survive it. I didn't believe I, well, I, I had a hope that I would, but I didn't believe I would. And being in that situation for me, I couldn't look forward to believing that I would when I'm faced with death and destruction so much. Then for sure I wouldn't make it because it's so much death and destruction to be faced with, to deal with, to where it's a good chance you might not make it out. And a lot of people don't make it out. So I had that mind state that I might not be one of the people that make it out. But before I got there, I was on the run for a year. So December, just say February 93, I went on a run for a case that was that was put against me that I didn't even do. I still say I didn't do it because I didn't do it, even though I did time for it and everything. And I can't say I did it because I did the time for it, but I didn't do it. So I was... I was on the run for a case that I didn't do, which was a murder case. And the, the way I knew I was on the run because they caught one of my friends and took him to jail. And when they took him, they wanted me too, and another person. So that's how I knew I was on the run. And while the time I'm the time I was on the run, it was serious. It was real serious, like police shooting in my back type stuff when I don't even got a gun. I'm running for my life and my freedom and everything. And I hear a pop shot behind me and I look back It's the police in the stance on his knees still aimed at me. And I turn, make a left around the building so he wouldn't shoot no more. So that's how serious it was on the run. And it was other things happened too, but I'm not, I don't want to talk about all of that, but that's how serious it was. I was on the run for almost a year. So I barely survived that. And in the process of surviving that, they would they would come like sweat my family, talk to my mother, tell her you need to tell him to turn himself in because he's dangerous and he's this and that. And if we catch him, we might have to kill him. So telling the mother that is like, damn, all she could do is try to convince me to turn myself in. But the lifestyle I was living was that I'm not turning myself into these people. They got to catch me. And if they catch me, I might not survive because I really don't want to go to jail. So. Did you feel that you were in a more dangerous, precarious situation while you were on the run? Most definitely. Most definitely. Okay. Yeah. Most definitely. So I made a, I made a deal with my mother that like, if they catch me, they can have me. But before that deal, I was in the mind state that most likely I'm not even going to let them catch me because they want me so bad for that and for other things. They want me so bad that most likely they're going to kill me anyway. Was that partly because your mom was that, was that? willingness to let them have you connected to your mom? Yeah, it was directly, directly connected to my mother. Cause I told her for her when she, at one point when she, they talked to her and threatened her and threatened me and threatened my life that I need to turn myself in or they're going to kill me. So she was so scared and not scared. Well, she was scared and she was worried about me that I let her know that if they catch me, I won't do nothing to provoke them. If they catch me, they can have me. They got me. I won't shoot it out with them. I won't shoot back at them. I won't do nothing. If they catch me, they can have me. Yeah, that's how they caught me, because of my mother. Even to the point where when I did get caught on another case, when I did get caught, it's like 
you know, it's for her that I'm still alive and possibly officers are still alive because the case I was caught on and what was happening, it was, it was that serious, but I had to jump on them and me having to jump on them. I was ready. I was in position, but I'm thinking about my mother and I'm thinking about my brother and my family. Uh, so I let them have it. So you, are you telling me that in, in the moment when you were got apprehended by the police that you had the advantage and you could have used that advantage um, to protect yourself and done more harm and you decided not to? I decided not to. But you had the advantage in the position. You were, you were better positioned in the situation. I had everything. I had everything. I raised yeah. the gun to the air and shot in the ceiling. And the police threw his hands up in the air, screamed and ran. And that's in the report. So he saw it, I saw it, we know it. Like, I hadn't. And I was on him because I knew where he was going to come out at. I knew where he was coming, but he didn't know that I was there because it was a whole nother case. So they didn't know what I was going through. They just know we in a situation mm -hmm. and they come into the situation they got called on. But it was me. So I'm going through what I'm going through and they just doing their job. And for my mother, like, I raised that gun to the ceiling instead of where it was already pointed at when he came, when he opened that door. And he saw it and he ran, but not ran like to say like I'm something else and he's a coward or something. It was just it was element of surprise that he didn't know he didn't know what was on, he didn't know I was there waiting for him. And that's to say for my mother, though, my mother did that. You know what I'm saying? And, and I thank her for it, too. I thank her for it. And she's still here and I still love her and I still appreciate her, you know, going to court and everything. She was there for me. My family was there. So now that I was going to court. I still felt I wasn't going to make it out because I had so many charges and so much stuff was going on. It's like, shit, now I'm in here. I'm probably never going to get out or I might end up dying in here. And and I survived it. So in, in response to your question, while I was in there, you know, fast forward from the county jail to prison. Once I got to prison, and the county jail was the worst place I ever been. County place is worse than any prison I've been to. Prison is dangerous, but the county jail is the worst ever, 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 ever. And I ain't suffering there, but I, I saw a lot of suffering and it was just terrible. County jail is the worst place. So by the time I made it to prison, my mind was already set on, on some things about myself because I saw so much bad shit that was worse than I saw on the streets I saw in the county jail. So when I made it to prison... This is where this is where I started really becoming somebody different, because in the county jail, I still consider myself a man of action. I'm still going to do what I got to do, handle what I got to handle and whatever, whatever is whatever, win, lose or draw. But in prison, I was able to, like, relax a little bit and start my start my soul searching. So that's where I learned how to talk. I learned how to communicate. I learned how to be diplomatic in prison because. I already, I, I realized, like, like I, I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know if I'm going to make it out. I don't know if I'm going to die in here. I don't know what it's going to be, but I don't fear it. I'm not worried. I don't care. I don't care about it like that, that I'm going to fear it. So now I need to know how I'm going to deal with it. So for me and my soul, soul searching journey, figuring how I'm going to deal with it, I had to figure, you know, what is it going to be? I'm here now. Now I'm in prison. Now I'm on the next phase of my journey from the county jail, from the streets, county jail to prison. What is it going to be? And one of the catchphrases is that, you know, whatever don't break you is going to make you. You know, if it don't break you, it's this, it's that. You know, the catchphrases. 
So me and the way I think is like, let me go deeper into this. Let me see what the principle of this is. And that's one of the first, not first, but one of the main principles I dove deep into. I went into the heart of it to understand it. And I realized like, it's not going to break me. Prison ain't going to break me, especially after surviving the county jail. Like I survived that shit. I could survive anything. So in prison, I was like, for sure it's not going to break me because I've been through the hardest. But now the next question is, since it's not going to break me, what is it going to make me? So I asked myself all those questions. Is it going to make me a monster? Is it going to make me hateful? Is it going to make me negative? Is it going to make me vengeful? And I was like, nah, it's not going to make me none of that stuff because on the streets, I was already turned into that. And like I say, I was—I always considered myself a smart person that did stupid things. So not out of ignorance was I doing bad things. Out of stupidity, I was doing it because I knew better. So that's, to me, no matter what everybody else call the terms or choose the terms they choose, for me personally, I consider it stupid. For me, I was a smart person that did stupid things. My stupidity was because I knew better, but I didn't do better. But later in life it still it helped me do better because I always knew better. I never let go of that. I never it was it was it was somebody in my life that used to call me the devil. A girlfriend I had, her mother called me the devil. She would say it like joking, but serious, like that boy's devil. Even when she used to say it, I didn't take pride in it, I didn't take happiness in it, none of that, because I knew I wasn't the devil, but I was always surprised that she would call me that. I wasn't mean to her or nobody else that she knew, but she knew stuff about me. So she called me the devil, but it made me feel bad on the inside because I knew I wasn't the devil. I knew, but I knew I did evil things. So that's where my stupidity came. And so when I got to prison, I knew it wasn't going to make me into nothing bad because I already been bad. So I decided in prison at that early stage of my journey that I'm going to do good. It's going to make me into something better. If I get out of jail or not, I decided it's going to make me something better than what I came in as. Do you remember that moment? Was that like a clear like day or night in, in the story of being in the penitentiary or was it just a gradual arrival? No, nah, it was it was clear. It was clear. Mm-hmm. It was clear and it was early. It was early in my time. It was when I first got to prison. Like in 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 that in that decision to be a better person or to be made into a better person than what I came in as, it was so clear. Like like I made I made certain decisions early on. Like some stuff I wasn't gonna participate in, no matter who was there, no matter who say what. I'm not participating. Sorry to interrupt. I was just about to ask you that. How do you demonstrate that you're gonna be better in a penitentiary environment? Like I say, like I said earlier, we was killing each other on the street, shooting each other, game banging and stuff. So we were so quick to do that because we hated ourselves. You know what I'm saying? We hate ourselves and we don't know about ourselves. So we quick to hurt ourselves. So in prison, it was the same thing. We quick to turn against each other. While we got so many other people against us, we still against each other. So as an example, me becoming a better person, I wasn't so quick to hurt people. And since we ourselves as black people, as a black man, I'm speaking, we quick to hurt ourselves, hurt each other. I decided early on, I'm going to stop that as much as possible from the jump. Or if not stopping, I'm going to tone it down. So I made the agreement with myself. I'm not going to be quick to hurt another black man in prison because it was in prison, just like on the streets. Any little thing, we're going to turn against each other. We're going to turn 
we're going to go to the extreme. You step on my shoes or you look at me wrong, next thing you know, we stabbing and killing each other. On the streets, we were shooting each other. So I decided in prison, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to be quick to hurt another black man for nothing or for something trivial or something small. Because with the other races, the politics limit that off tops anyway. I learned that early in prison. What do you mean? You're not going to be so quick to hurt another race in prison because it affects everybody. So the whites regulate mm-hmm. the whites, the Mexicans regulate the Mexicans, the Asians regulate the Asians, blacks regulate the blacks. But like I say, we turn on each other so much, we hurting each other. If you cross the racial barrier and hurt someone else, then all of a sudden it becomes a whole racial thing because everybody's backing each other up and the consequences are big. Exactly. Is that- okay, okay, so, okay. So with that being the case, it's not too many racial problems until something serious happens. So once something serious happens, it is what it is. Ain't no stopping it. It's already going down because it's that serious. But it's not going to be a lot of trivial stuff. Like, I'm not going to come argue with you. We argue first, then we fight, then we stabbing and all that stuff. It's not going to happen. We're not even going to get to an argument because you're going to think, as a white man, you're going to think like, now I can't argue with this black dude because my people are going to get mad at me for even arguing with him. And for me, I can't argue with you because same thing, like my people What's the argument about? Like, who was wrong? Like, it's going to be so much to it. It's not going to just be simply me and you. It can be, but the program and the culture is set up that way that it's not going to happen. It's not going to just be open season on other races. But within the race, like white boys, the masculines, different blacks, within the race, whatever goes on, goes on. Everybody fighting, fighting each other. So that's what I did early in my prison sentence was I committed not to be eager and over eager to go at go at it with another black man so when i started hitting yards and being with people i would let them know like some issues some black on black stuff and all that trivial stuff i'm not in. don't don't look to me to participate on some black on black because like i say i consider myself a smart person that do stupid things so considering myself smart i saw that that was the biggest problem that i was gonna face it was gonna be stuff happening with blacks i'm gonna be mad other people gonna be mad and we're going to go do something. So that was my, part of my first healing was not to be so quick to hurt my own people. And in hurting my own people, I'm hurting myself. And then from there, like I say, we're already not hurting other people because there's barriers. So we're not like, like where I was at, I was on level four prison yards, maximum security. So on most of those yards, you can't even really interact with the other races too much. So it was so limited, like that's already covered. We're not gonna be into other stuff unless something is just really happening. And we, you know, you gotta deal with it. You gonna you gotta protect yourself or you gotta whatever. So within the race is the problem. So that was my first part of healing. And that's how I got out of that type of stuff was I let people know ahead of time. Because I don't believe in, you know, you know how you know how it goes when shit hit the fan and it scatters, it splatters, it's gonna land everywhere. So when shit hit the fan, you can't wait to that point then say, oh, I'm not a part of that. Me considering myself a smart person, I thought the process. So I let people know ahead of time. If it's trivial, if it's black on black, if it's nonsense, anything, if it's nonsense, don't look to me. I help defend, but I'm not going to offend nobody. But if it's trivial, it's black on black and it's nonsense, whoever that's with that stuff, y'all deal with that stuff. Don't look to me. So when it's over, don't look and say, oh, he didn't even help. He didn't jump in or he didn't participate. 
because they know ahead of time before shit hit the fan, before shit all got all scattered up. I already said, don't look for me in the hole. Don't look for me to come back there because I'm not in it. As you made this turn towards bettering yourself and making a decision like that around, you know, not repeating this self-hatred, I think you called it. Um, where, where were the other teachings and, and opportunities for you to continue to grow into yourself? How did it come about in addition to the things you've already discussed? I started, I started being around good people in prison, met some of the best people in the world in prison. Just like at Mendocino, it was real good people in prison, some solid people. And I started being around them, people that was doing good things, that was studying, that was going to religious service. I was I went to all religious services in prison. I went to Buddhist services. I was in there meditating in prison. I went to Islamic services, read the Quran, went to Christian services, read the Bible. I went to, I, I even did a sweat, which no black people really was doing at the time. I did a sweat with the Native Americans on a level four prison yard. And because they knew me, they knew my program. Like the ones that I was cool with and communicated with, when I said I want to participate, they presented it to their group and they invited me and they let me participate because they knew I wasn't on no bullshit. They knew I wasn't playing and trying to do nothing sneaky. So they invited me in it. So that's the type of stuff I was doing to help better myself. I was reading, I was studying, I read a lot of books and self-help books and history books and knowledge of self books and all kinds of stuff. I was just reading and studying and like programming myself and bringing myself out of that negativity. And that was, that was a major part of the process. And in that process, it was, you know, you learn in reading the books, you come across so much knowledge, so many different ideas that I would decipher what I want to hold on to because I was taught that by older people before I even went to prison. You know, you hear everything, you take it all in, but you let the bullshit go through you and you hold on to what's real. So, like I say, if I'm reading Islam, I'm not going to become a jihadist because I'm reading Islam. If I'm reading Buddhism, I'm not going to become a monk because I don't want to be a monk, but I'm not going to just fall into the program of what that religion is because that's what's presented to me. I'm going to take something good out of it, what I can relate to, and I'm going to keep pushing. So I was taking something from everything. I was going to all the services. I was going I was going to men's groups. So Mendocino, I was in the type of Mendocino before I got to Mendocino too. And that's one of the things made me comfortable with it in Mendocino because in prison, up in New Folsom, they had programs and they had they had what they called the men's group. And in the men's group, it was like a miniature Mendocino where you would go in and deal with people. You talk and if you want to open up, you open up. If you want to not open up, then you stay within yourself. But the same agreement in there was no physical violence. And I learned I learned a lot from the men. You know what I'm saying? The men that was in there crying and screaming and in, in the men's group in Folsom, in New Folsom, we would fold up a mattress. We would, we would stand it up and roll it up, and about three people would hold it, and we'd let the person that's going through something that want to swing and hit something, we'd let them swing and hit that mattress. And it had been men, like, screaming and crying and hitting the hell out that mattress. Boom, boom, boom. But they'd let it out. And after that, we all embraced. And this was white, black, masking, others, Samoans, everybody. We would hug it out and like help that person through what he was going through. And, and it was some good shit. It was some good shit. And I still get calls from people that remember that. Like one dude was just telling me a few months ago, was like, man, remember we was in men group? 
I never went to nothing like that till you took me in there. But now he facilitating, but he been in there ever since. And now he facilitates some men's groups and some other self-help groups. So that's the work. You know what I'm saying? That's the work. And that was the process of me growing. So with that too, some of the knowledge I gained was the difference between the physical and the mental and the spiritual, the emotional and all that. So I started what I was calling caging the animal early in my time too. So my physical animal, I was caging him up. And in the physical cage, I'm caging up my physical animal, but I'm opening up my mind. I'm I'm opening up my spirit. So now I'm able to, you know, leave outside of these walls when I write a letter to my family. I'm able to leave outside of this cage of reality when I'm closing my eyes and I'm meditating and I'm praying and I'm going through stuff like that. So I was growing through the process and encaging my animal. One example of what I did with that is in prison, they used to let you get the magazines, the smut magazines, the porno magazines. So early in prison, when I got there in 95, you still can get them. So it was a lot of them circulating. And then a little after that, they made they changed the law to where you can't get no new ones in. But anybody with old ones, you can keep your old ones. So I already had a little collection early in my time. So when I started studying and stuff, the stuff I was learning and decided to cage my animal, I sold my magazines because... I knew it was wrong. Like, ain't no need to have smut magazines in prison with a celly and with all men. So, like, let me get rid of this shit because it's the wrong way to be going, to to be promoting animalistic behavior in a sexual way through these magazines and you're surrounded by all men. So, like, let me get rid of it. I got rid of them. And that's not to say I didn't look at them because knowing that I got rid of them, but they still all around, if I want to look at them, I would just borrow somebody else's then give it back when I get done with it. So that was part of the process of bettering myself too, because I'm not going to be in here and be a physical person in this physical reality with half the universe missing. Half the universe is the women. If we only got men and women as humans. So I'm in here with all men. The other half is gone on the outside of these walls, the women. So I don't need to be in here exercising this animalistic shit this physical attraction to women when I don't have no possibility of getting with a woman on this level four yard. So I got rid of those books and that helped me in my growth process because it helped me focus on the meditation of being positive on being mental and being spiritual and letting, and letting go of the physical in the sense of not dwelling on physical, physical activities and stuff like develop my mind. And my body is going to be what it's going to be. So I'm going to do my push-ups. I'm going to exercise physically and do what I got to do. I'm going to eat my food. I'm going to get my sleep. All the physical stuff is there. Letting go what I can that held on to the negative and focus on the positive. And that was in my prison time. And like I say, with the diplomacy, being diplomatic in prison, learning how to talk, was that I couldn't... Another thing with... Another thing with not getting involved in all of the activities and stuff of stabbing and all that stuff. And just being a part of everything was that, you know, in prison, you're going to get caught for everything damn near because it's prison guards, guard tower on top of you guard tower down the ways, looking through binoculars, rifle scopes and all kind of stuff. So most stuff happened. You're going to get caught for it and go to the hole and get new cases and 
all that. So so I decided like I need to get diplomatic. I need to learn how to open my mouth. I need to learn how to speak my thoughts. So instead of always feeling some kind of way and acting on it, I need to figure out to start talking about it, start working it out. So that was another part of my growth, being diplomatic and learning how to talk because I need to communicate things. When something is happening, I need to say what I feel. Because before prison, if I need to say, if I, I didn't say too much. I say I would, I would be around people and be the one that don't say nothing for an hour, two hours straight. Everybody else talking, I'm just there, just listening and observing and watching the surroundings and everything and not really saying nothing. But in prison, it's like, I need to, I need to speak. It wasn't never that I couldn't speak. It was just I chose not to. But growing up, I was shy, too. So I never wanted to speak, neither. I never really had the urge or the desire to be the person talking and having people listening to me. I was cool with being quiet. But how did you go from prison, uh, difficult circumstances where you had to negotiate the reality of your bodily experience with giving your mind some freedom, some peace of mind, some learning, some ability to communicate, to returning into the world and uh, becoming a, a, a father again, obviously to your son, but then uh, taking on uh, Dana and her family. Well, that that came as a result of my growth process. And as a result, is like what I've been through in my life, I always had a father until he passed away. You know, he was there. He played his part. And he was real quiet, so he didn't really talk too much, but he handled his business. So that's probably who I kind of modeled myself behind. But I had men in my life. I had people. I was always protected. Like, I never I never really been around people. I done been bullied at times, like most people. I, I assume almost damn near everybody been bullied. And... Overall, though, for my whole life, I've been protected. I've never been taken advantage of to the point where right now I could say, like, oh, I was this or I was that, and it fucked me up because it happened. I don't have that part of a story that a lot of people have because I was always protected. I always had a father. I always had a big brother that was strong. I always had big sisters that were strong. And to say one of my main bullies was my big sister. So she was my main bully in the sense that she picked on me. She did stuff and she toughened me up though but as far as taking advantage I was always protected so in my journey towards the end of my prison journey is what led me to like you know taking care of a family and everything is because in growing up and maturing as an individual I knew I knew I had to have a purpose so before jail the streets was my purpose it's like I was married to the streets I was committed to that negative lifestyle. So towards the end of my time, because I didn't have a life sentence. So that's how I was likely to get out. But I did some things. I called a, I called a case like a couple of years before getting out. Got caught with a knife, went to court and everything. They gave me like 16 months close to getting out. So that's why in my whole time in jail, I, I was like, I get out when I get out. Until then, I'm here. So, but I was always preparing myself if I did get out. So the way the way I got with, with Dana, with my family and everything, is that I knew I needed a purpose. And in needing a purpose, I knew if I don't have one or find one, I'm going to make one. So I want to find a good purpose. I wanted a good purpose because I tried the bad. So I went through a process. When my time got short in 2004, 
and I was more likely to come home really once I got to New Folsom. Because this is another thing, like, first part of my time was in Calipatria. It was serious there. It was so serious, people wasn't even going home. So I wasn't a lifer, but I was doing my time as a lifer because I was on a serious mm-hmm. prison. We was calling them plantations. I was on a serious plantation, and it was going down, and nobody was going home. Nobody. Like, a couple of people went home, and I remember one dude, he went home like two times and came right back. So it was like everybody was just there. That was in um, Calipatria. I left Calipatria, went to the hole, got transferred to Sentinella. It was it was a lot looser, but it was still wild. People was going home, and it was better, but it still was like right up the street from Calipatria, a couple of hours away. And same energy and everything. It just wasn't as serious, but it was still bad. And uh, I ended up in the hole there, doing some time in the hole, got transferred. And when I got to New Folsom, that's when – that's when I hit another level in my development because in New Folsom, you got whites dealing with blacks. In Calipatria, you didn't have none of that shit. Like, I had a Mexican dude that used to come talk to me. I dealt with, we'll hit, we'll hit some laps and he'll say what's up to me, say we'll talk a little bit, do, do whatever business we got to do, hustle or whatever. And it was all in secret because we couldn't even interact publicly because his people would have did something to him type stuff. So Sentinella was a little looser, but it still was so divided. But once I got to New Folsom, that's where the men's group was at and other things, the sweat lodge and more interactions with other people took place because the program was looser. It wasn't that serious. It was still serious, but it was more it was more human. It was more human in New Folsom. I played I played chess on the yard in New Folsom. Calipatra, I wouldn't play no game on the yard. Sinella, I wouldn't play no game on the yard. New Folsom, I sat on the yard and played chess with somebody multiple times. And just wouldn't do it because it's a security risk. You know, you could get stabbed in the neck. You could get stabbed and shit. So I wasn't doing it, but New Folsom was that type of place. So in New Folsom, I got more hopeful that I was going to make it home. So I started thinking on different ways about getting home. So in the process of that, those thoughts was like, if I do make it home, I've been trying to be a better person and all that. Now, what if I make it is what I was asking myself. So now asking myself that is like, what do I need to do? And what do I need to be? And what do I need to get into? So I started thinking about people. One of the things I thought about a lot was thinking about people who stayed out of jail a lot, who didn't really always come to jail and who didn't do a lot of time. And the people who did that mostly was people who was in relationships like almost all the people I thought about that didn't do a lot of jail time had stable relationship. Well, not necessarily stable, like just stable, meaning that they had a girl or a wife and a family and kids and took care of their kids. Those are the people that didn't do a lot of time. And in meditating on that and searching on that mentally and spiritually was that those are the people that had balance to their purpose. So I felt like I needed that because if I didn't do that, then I was going to make a purpose. And for sure, I didn't want to make the streets my purpose again, but I knew if I didn't have nothing, I would be like those people that always end up in and out of jail. So I made the purpose. I made the decision that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make family my purpose. I'm going to make community my purpose. I'm going to make loving somebody my purpose, taking care of somebody my purpose, because I'm, I'm not the one, like I said, I was taking care of all my life. I had people there for me. I, 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 
hustle with my mama and my grandmama and my granddaddy. I, you know, work with everybody and they took care of me and we, we all survived. So now that I'm older, I want to do what they did. I want to take care of people because that's what they put it. That's what they instilled in me. So I, I knew I needed to get out and have me a purpose. And I decided also that I wasn't going to be bad when I got out. Like I already tried the bad way and I see where it got me. It got me in prison involuntary because I wouldn't agree to be there. That's what make it involuntary. I wouldn't agree to be in prison. Even if I'm wrong and deserve to be there, I still would be involuntary because I wouldn't put myself in prison. So that's what make it involuntary. Even though I did what I what was necessary to get myself in prison, I played my part and got myself there. But I knew, I knew that's where I didn't want to be. I knew I didn't want to be what I used to be. Like over all them years, I was committed to that. I, I drilled that in my system that for sure I didn't want to be the person getting out of prison, always coming back to prison. So I needed a purpose and I committed to like forgive people, to not be mad at people, to not be angry, not be upset about nothing, not to blame people, not to hold grudges and not to be negative. I decided to be positive. I want to see what the positive side of life is about because I did so much of the negative. So when I got out, or before I got out, I knew in forgiving everybody and all that, then I knew if I make it, I need a family. And needing a family, that's going to be my purpose. So either I'm going to get out and make a family, or I'm going to get out and get into a ready-made family, and I, or I'm going to get out and get with somebody that I can love and the community be my family in a positive way, but I'm going to have that family purpose. And that's going to keep me balanced. So when I got out, I was I was with I was with a couple of people and it didn't work for whatever reason. And and I decided before I got out that I wasn't gonna play with nobody too, as far as play with women. Because before I went, I had a low opinion of women, a very low opinion of women, because I was in the streets. So I felt women was anti streets because they the ones gonna say stay in the house. So I was like, I don't need that energy. So I was like like anti-women, like they soft. I had all my opinions of women that, you know, they not worthy of the lifestyle I was living because I was so negative that they can't take the negativity that come with it and all that stuff. So that made my no opinion of women before I went to jail. During my time, I learned a new respect for women. Not that I disrespected women, like I wasn't bad towards them, but I just had a low opinion. And so during my time, I realized it's the women that's way better than us as men way better. I still feel it. I I feel that women are the more complete humans compared to women and men. They're the more complete humans. And I got a new respect for them during my time in prison because they was the ones that was there. You know, they was the ones that was stable. So I was able to study and learn about the woman's struggle too. That as men, we run in the streets doing all kinds of stuff. And even in the household, we not really like doing all the detailed stuff. We run in the streets. We even if we working, we still working. But the woman is working and doing the clothes and cooking and cleaning and raising the kids. So during my time, I was I was learning all that. Like these women are the ones way stronger than us. And we think we got the strength. They're doing stuff that we can't even commit to that. We can't even commit to and really do. Like even if we say it like oh, I'm the man of the house. But hell nah, Jeff, you know, we got, we got kids. <laughs> we the man of the house because we got the title. But. That title don't really say that we the man of the house because we're not doing everything the household requires. We're not cooking every day or every other day or whatever. 
we're not doing all that. Damn. I got re- I got real humble when I watched my wife give birth to our oldest daughter. I was like, <laughs> okay, okay, exactly, right. Hit 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 a ball over a fence. Big deal, bro. Yeah. Push a baby. <laughs> Put push a baby out. Take twenty four hours and work on that for a while. See how that yeah. goes. Yeah. Yeah, or cramp every yeah. month. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You no, know, we get a headache. Yeah. My wife say now I get a headache. I turn into a baby. I get a tooth. Catch a cramp every month. Then, then cry about something. So you know, I got I got a new respect for women. So I committed when I got out. I wasn't gonna play with women. I wasn't gonna disrespect. Mm-hmm. I was on mm-hmm. or act like I'm in a relationship, but treated like I'm not. So I'm not playing with nobody. When I got out, mm-hmm. like I say, I once I got with Dana. And she was somebody I knew. Like, we didn't communicate none in prison. And I was surprised, though, but I guess it was how it was meant to be. Because none in prison, we didn't communicate. But we knew each other before I went to prison. And when I got out, I I linked up with her, her family, her sisters, and everybody. Because when you get out of prison from doing a lot of time, you go back to who you know. So even after doing 10, 11 years, you're going to get out and find the people that you was dealing with before you went in because that's who you know, that's who you're familiar with. So I was going to the positive people, you know what I'm saying? And her sisters and everybody, her, her sisters and everybody is who I got with, was hanging around them where I go see them, visit them. I got with Dana and and that was the ready-made family that I needed because she had kids. She had a little kid, man, man, was less than one years old. And she had them, she had five kids, ranging all the way up from one up to, I think Taisha was... 11 or 12 at the time. So I got out with somebody that I knew. I knew what she was made of. I knew she was a good woman because she had a man, her her first kid's baby, her first kid's father, he had ended up getting killed in jail. So he wasn't around her two littlest kids. He was out, but they wasn't really together. So by me getting with her, um, so it was a ready-made family for me. So I was cool. So I felt her out. And early in it, I felt I could trust her. And that's a big issue for me. So I felt I could trust her early in it. She had kids, so I can commit to them. I don't need to make my own because she had her too. So not to be putting her personal shit out there, but like I say, how humans work and we humans. So it is what it is. So she couldn't have no more kids is what I'm saying. So I knew I wasn't going to have my own kids by her, but I do have a son before prison. And I'm not with his mother. I wasn't with his mother. So mm-hmm. getting with Dana was a new ready-made family I got with. And I came to love her, love the kids and everything. And they've been my purpose. And we're still together. We got together. I got out August 2004. And we got together in November 2004. And we've been together ever since. And her kids is my kids. My kid is my kid. I got kids and grandkids. And I'm here. <laughs> yeah, I've known you for a good part of that last 18 years. I think we met uh, in 2005, if I have it right. And um, it's it's remarkable the transformation and the honesty and the the lived reality of the hardship and and the work it takes to find your sense of self in the face of the different positions that you chose and 
your environment offered you. Of all the things you said, one of the things that really struck me today, and I never heard you say it, but talking about the the, the self hatred aspect of being a, of being black, and and that particular um, hardship, and the way that underneath these more difficult or harmful or, or or underneath the struggle and underneath the extreme response to small things that don't need to be as intensely responded to is a hot button is are some hot buttons there. And that, and that, that's, that's real and deep. And you mentioned to me once that your mom at a certain point talked to you about the, the struggle, which I think you meant the struggle of, of being black in America. Um, and I, I was so curious, like, how does a mom, how, how does a young kid, what age when a mom, your mom, in this case, this instance started to say, Hey, look, um, this is what we're up against. And, and, and the teachings there, you know, and the learnings and the beginning to prepare, prepare for that before it, you know, made a, a turn into the option of being a gang member or whatever, but just that, that initial awareness as a young person that like, okay, this is how it is. Yeah. Yeah. Would you be able to talk about that moment a little yeah. bit, that learning? Yeah. 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 So, so for my mother, man, my mother, my mother is the ultimate. Only person above my mother was my grandmother. And she passed not too long, a couple of years ago. So my mother, my mother is the most. And growing up, she always been a strong woman. You know what I'm saying? And she played a part in my strength because things she said and how she raised us and the part she played in our lives was like some major shit, extremely major. And, you know, she was brought up tough, so she's a tough lady. And in the struggle, like me being quiet, like I was the type of kid, I was so quiet, I could I could hang around the grown people because I was so quiet. And like I say, I consider myself smart. So, And that's not to brag. I say that, when I say that, I say it in a humble way. I just say it to say I consider myself smart because I was able to do things that other kids couldn't do. And I know why I was able to do it because I was aware even as a kid. So I say smart. I say I consider myself smart because I've been with myself a long time and I know I'm not a dummy. Yeah, no, I consider you really smart too. And I know you're situationally have a high uh, social emotional intelligence. That's just like, I've seen it time and time again when we've done mentoring work together of, and other stories that you've shared. So I'm right with you. I don't see it as anything, but just being honest about your ability to perceive a circumstance and and work your way through it, and it's good to it's good to be honest about that. Yeah. So so with my mother's like like at at an early age, like eight, nine, ten years old, I was aware of a lot of stuff, like in the in the struggle. And I like I was saying, I I can hang around the grown people because I was so quiet because I was smart enough to understand when grown folks said when they would tell other kids, shut up while grown folks are talking. Grown people really used to say that. And I remember it. And I remember them telling somebody else that. So before they get a chance to tell me that, I'm going to just be quiet. Because the one that they always had to tell that to is the one that couldn't be around them. So I knew, like, if I don't get in his position, if I don't make noise and they get mad at me, I can stay around the grownups. And I like being around the grownups more than the kids. So, like, going to the family's house and everything, the kids would be in the back room, the grown-ups in the kitchen, at the card table, playing cards, drinking, and all of what the grown-ups do. I was able to be the kid at the cards table with them. 
at a young age, I remember playing spades with the grownups because I watched and I learned how to play just from watching. So when they finally let me play, I was able to play because I already watched long enough. So I would play spades with the grownups. I would play dominoes sometimes. I would be the one, all the grown folks having fun. They can't tell each other, go make me a drink because they all fussing and cussing now. So nobody is doing what the other ones say. They would tell me, Damien, go make me a drink. Put this much. I'm putting my hand right here. Put put this much Bacardi in this much Coke. You know what I'm saying? They telling me how to make the drinks and I'm going to make the drink, bringing it back to them. But I was so quiet, they didn't have a problem with me being there. And me being quiet and being in their presence, I was learning. I was learning. I learned so much at a young age all my life. I've been learning. So with my mother, she was my main teacher because she was my mother. She was the one I was attached to. But I also had like a second mother, a third. I had a couple of mothers in a sense because my oldest sister was like my second mother. Then I had a godmother who I would go stay with sometimes. So I had I had some strong women in my life that took care of me. So I would learn in the way, like with the struggle with my mother, at times, we would go sell cardboard. We would go out with my grandfather, and we would collect cardboard, trash cans, aluminum, and go recycle it to get a few dollars to pay some bills or put some food on the table or buy some drinks, whatever it was for. And I would be with them, though. You know what I'm saying? I was a kid that was out with the grownups doing that. So I saw the struggle that other kids didn't even get a chance to see because they would, other kids would be at home with some, I would end up in the car and the grownups wouldn't kick me out the car. Like get back in the house. They would just, you know, let me roll. So I was learning in the process. So in learning from my mother, like one crucial time, probably like I was probably about 11 years old. I was about 11. I remember telling my mother, I remember asking her for some money. And this is when welfare was going on. So she had a job and at times she would get welfare, different things, different stages of life. And um, I remember at one time asking for some money and she said she didn't have none. And I questioned her on it. So that was another thing about me. I will open my mouth when I need to. Like, for the most part, I'm going to be quiet, even as a kid. But if I need to, I'm going to open it and say something. So I asked her for some money. She didn't. She said she didn't have it. So I questioned her on it. It's like, you should, I said something like, you should have some money because the first just came. And you got your check. or you And you work or something. Something like that. So she checked me on it quick. She's like, you think I got some money because I got a check? And you think this and you think that? Let me, let me show you. Because she was sharp on it, like, immediately. <laughs> she was like... I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna show you how money works. So from there, next time she got a check, when that check came in the mail, she showed me the check, showed me the amount on it and everything. She took me. She held me that day. Like she held me with her that day. We went and cashed the check. We go. We went in. I think Nick's check cashing or something. We went in there cashing. She showed me how much money it was. We counted out. She counted out. Showed it to me. Then we went and paid some. Nah. Then she ordered some money orders on the spot to pay some bills. So she was like, now that cash we had, it's in this money order. Then we addressed the envelope to send off when we got home. She's like, now that's gone. Later, the next day or something, we went to the grocery store. She's like, see how much money we got now? We saw it. We counted it or whatever. Went to the grocery store. She made me pay for it. Like she did with the money orders. I had to buy them. She put the money in my hand and purchased the money order. So from there, then at the grocery store, we tally everything up at the casual. She gave me the money. Here, hand it to her. Pay that bill. Pay for this stuff. Now the money then turned into a couple of dollars. 
So even as a kid, like I felt bad that I even challenged her and questioned her on it. And I learned a valuable lesson for, from it. I learned, I learned about money. I learned some things about money at that time. And then later in life, like that was like 11 years old. Cause I remember, cause around that time is when I feel I had my last Christmas because I felt like I was a part of the struggle now, you know? So now I don't, now I understand the next level of the conversation when Christmas come around and the grownups, like they want to buy us toys and stuff, but we don't understand what, how hard it is to get it. So at that time was my last Christmas that I really wanted. No, nah, no, nah, the one before that is the one last one I wanted because the next one that came around, I didn't want it. So I was, acting like a grown-up then, like, telling my mother, like, I don't want nothing for Christmas. Don't worry about me. Trying to tell her, like, don't worry about it. And she's like, nah, we're going to get you something. We got to get you something. What do you, what do you really want? So just for her, I was like, just give me a double cassette with the um, record for the radio so I can record off of the um, um, K-Day, the radio station, and make me some cassette tapes off of it. So just give me the double cassette. Shout out to K-Day. Yeah, shout out to K-Day. Back in the day. <laughs> that was way back in, like, 84. And I was a kid. We was living in Pomona at the time. We had left the projects living in Pomona. When we go to L.A., I would record on my radio out there off the radio station because they didn't have the same stations in Pomona. So I had music that other people didn't have. So that's how I remember the time and the age. Well, that was my last Christmas where I really like wanted something, told her, like, just give me the radio, her and my father. So they got me that radio. So after that, I was like, I wasn't tripping on Christmas, even though after that, it have been some Christmases that I did want some where I lost focus, I guess. But that was a crucial point in my life. So from there, fast forward to like 13, 13, 12, 13, the end of of elementary and into junior high, I learned the different part of the struggle because now we back, we left Mona and we back in the projects in 85. And in the projects, it's like I learned a whole nother part of the struggle because my, my, like I say, my father, he always was there. He was quiet. He was working. So he would work, get his paycheck. He would keep out what he needed, a couple of dollars to buy cigarettes or buy whatever and get back and forth to work. And he'd get my mother the rest to pay the bills. And I saw all of that and I understood it. And um, another thing back to a little back a little bit. A little back a little bit is that you know, that was another illegal situation, my father and my mother being together. And what made it illegal is because at times my mother was on the county and the county was set up for for a woman to get county or get benefit. We call it the county, but it was welfare. For a woman to get welfare benefits, she couldn't have a man. Back to the tension, right? It's back to that tension between survival. Exactly. Do you follow the rules of, of the society? Or do you survive? So, you know, my father was there, but legally he wasn't. Because if he was legally, as far as on record, on taxes and everything, on his work paycheck, then she couldn't get the benefits that she got. And then the benefits, if she didn't get them, that's all it would help pay the bills. It wasn't like she was getting the benefits, getting rich, stacking the money. Like, like I said, she made me pay the bills. She made me get some of the money orders and pay those bills. So... It wasn't a come up. It was a survival. I get it. And I saw all of that. So, so, so fast forward to like 85 when we back, went back to the projects, my, my sister 
and my mother, like they would sell dollar joints. And that was that helped supplement the income. So in selling those dollar joints, we would go buy weed. And like I said, I still was quiet. So I still was able to be around while my little brother and probably my cousin and stuff, they didn't really know what was going on. Or if they did, I don't know. They would have to tell that story. But I know for sure they wasn't on no missions with us to go buy no weed. I know sometimes my mother, most times my mother and my sister, and sometimes it was me and my mother or me, my mother and my sister. But like I said, I was there because I was quiet. So I didn't interfere and interrupt. I was there so much that when I first, when I rolled my first joint, I rolled it right. And I, and I learned how to roll it just off of watching them roll so many of them. And um, that was part of the struggle, man. And she, like, they were rolling joints, selling. They wouldn't sell to no kids. They had rules to it. Kids meaning the older teenagers. Like, they'd send them away. Like, nah, we don't sell no joints here. Ain't no kids. But get out of here. And they'll leave. But that was all part of the struggle. And um, yeah. Once I hit like, like I said, I got shot at 15. So somewhere around that time, I started hustling a little bit too, doing little stuff. And, you know, I was going through my dilemmas. I was like suicidal at a point because I didn't see no purpose to life. And that's how later in prison, I knew that I had to have a purpose because when I got in act real active in the gangs, I, I felt like it wasn't no purpose. The only purpose was the gang, was the neighborhood, was the community. So I'm protecting this. I'm doing what I got to do to make sure the neighborhood is safe. And that just so happened to be a neighborhood that's called a game. You know what I'm saying? And all that shit. So, but that was my purpose. So I wasn't doing it like, because I hate blue. I was doing it because of my, I need to keep my community safe. So I was active. <clears throat> and, um, but like I say, other than that, I felt like it ain't no purpose to life. Ain't nothing. So I was like at 15, 16, I was suicidal too. Like suicidal in the sense, like not I'm finna kill myself, but suicidal in the sense, I don't care if I die. Like, I don't care if these dudes kill me. I don't care what, whatever. I'm not happy to be alive, so I don't care if I die, basically. So, so at that time, I remember at one time I had to talk with my mother because I wasn't, I was down. I was depressed, I guess, stressed out, all kind of shit. So I remember telling my mother, talking to her, asking her, like, what is life about? And I don't care about this life. And I wish an earthquake come. I told her that. I remember telling her that. I wish an earthquake come and everybody just die. I don't want to be here. And she sat me down and she was talking to me about life and telling me, like, just because an earthquake come don't mean you're going to die and all that stuff. And it was true, but I was de- I was de- I was depressed. I was a young, depressed dude. Like, as a black man, as a young black man, I already done been, at that time, already done, I think, been tortured by the police trying to make me confess to some shit, like all kinds of shit I've been through already. So I was just down. So when she was telling me all that, and I remember telling her, like, would you sell weed? You selling, and, you know, weed as a kid, as a youngster, like, you, you, you doing wrong is what I was saying. And she told me, like, she explained to me how weed come from the earth and where, where do I think the money come from? Once again, she telling me, like, where do I think something's coming from and think she got something? So she was breaking all that down and just like, you know, we had a real heart to heart talk. And it helped me out of my little funk that I was in, too, at that time, because that's my mother. So once she set me down, no matter what she told me, I was going to be a different person after she finished telling me, especially by me opening up, getting to the point, opening up, saying what I feel and say. So she taught me a lot in the stroke. And I get I give my mother a whole lot of credit, you know, because she's been there. And then, you know, her strength. 
what she felt about her kids, what she felt about us and things she say, you know, part of what made me not feel that I'm not scared of nothing really too. Cause she used to always say, I died and go to hell for my kids. Like she'd be arguing with her sisters or something or from a family reunion, arguing with the family and be like, no, I don't give a damn. I die and go to hell for my kids. I don't give a damn. You better not disrespect my kids or you better not this or that. And I always remember as a kid looking, thinking like, damn, die and go to hell. <laughs> and you know, as a kid, Coming up under the teachings of the Bible and church and all that, hell is the worst place, and the devil and the devil right. is the worst. And she like saying it with so much conviction, like I die and go to hell. I fight the devil for my kids. I don't give a damn. And I remember just always looking, hearing her say it, like, damn, that's some strong shit. So now, once I'm older and start going through shit, like I said, my mama willing to die and go to hell. I am too. Like I ain't scared. She ain't scared of it. I ain't scared of it. And it made me the tough type of person I am, you know what I'm saying, to be able to deal with stuff and adjust and adapt and survive. Yeah, and that's the model, right? That's the teaching and that's the, I mean, really just the incredible resilience at so many levels. I know that the legal, non-legal and the issues around harmful behavior of gang life are, are, you know, those are real issues. Underneath that, peeling back the surface, you know, and just seeing the the emotional territory, you know, the hurt, the harm, the struggle, the, the binds, the, the complex dynamics that it means to become, to work as a human in, in situations as the one you grew up in. I mean, we all have them. We all have our own versions. We all got to kind of figure out the patterns, but you've been able to illustrate things to me through your ability to communicate, through your ability to be open and and reach out the limitations of racial norms and and embrace me as a friend and a brother that have been so good for my heart and been so good for my mind. I thought I just want to share and be in the conversation we have in this, this podcast way. And I'm just really glad that we've, we've taken the time and you've opened yourself up with so much generosity and, and so much truth and so much honesty about uh, your journey um, some of the community, some of the work, some of the dynamics about, you know, the community of Nickerson. Um, that's fine. That's good. We've always love to talk about Nickerson, always love to be supportive and an ally. And, but yet more importantly about you and your journey and, and, and the journey through prison and the journey through your family and the journey with Dana. So thank you, Damien, so much for yeah bringing your stories to the show today. I deeply respect them. Um, I appreciate you and I'm really grateful to have had this conversation today. Yeah, and, and I appreciate it. I appreciate it, Jeff, and thank you for being the person and the man that you are. You know what I'm saying? And you made it, you made us some good shit. You know, as a black man in this world, on this journey, speaking for myself, but I'm sure a lot of other black men can feel it. You know, we 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 got some things in us that only we got because we got some experiences in us that only we experience and we can't really share with people because the world just ain't set up like that. You know, the world ain't set up for us to really express ourselves. The world is set up for us to, you know, as black men to stay in a certain position in this world. And I don't know what the reason for that is. It seemed like, it seemed like it's a, it's some kind of fear because like I said in Mendocino one time and we ain't hurt nobody. You know what I'm saying? But ourselves, we ain't killed no planet. We ain't killed no species. We ain't made nothing go extinct. We ain't did nothing that other people did. We ain't conquered no land. 
we ain't did some stuff that other races and done. We ain't built no nuclear bombs. Like we ain't did a lot of the horrible shit that people did, but for some reason we under attack. And we can't even really talk about that attack that we under as black men because it's, it's subtle in a lot of ways. So if we speak it, it's like, oh, are you tripping? How are you saying that? And I don't see it. Other people. Like, I, I, how can you say that? I don't see it. How do you get this out of that? So we can't, we got to keep it to ourselves, really. But it's really happening. Like, we really under attack. We under a vicious attack to where we can't even be men, really. Meaning, meaning, meaning we can't really openly express ourselves. We can't really address our concerns, even with the community, even with, like I'm saying about, you know, labeling these kids as gang members, but then they end up in prison because of what somebody else labeled them. Where I know as a kid, like, we become what we become because the environment presents it to us. That's the opportunity and one of the opportunities. And, you know, as a man now, as a man now, we know, we know we have opportunity, but some of it, we just, we just fall under the pressure of it and become it. So in those opportunities to be either a gang member or a non-gang member, it's like some hell of a limited options. And then even for the ones, I got friends who never gang bang, but they still from the neighborhood. They still could have got killed just like anybody else. They still could end up in jail under false charges like anybody else, but they never gang bang. And as black men, we said we we suffering in a lot of ways. But at the same time, in that suffering with pride, I will say I'm sure we display a, a strength that most people don't got because we surviving it. We surviving the pressure. We surviving the the attack. We we surviving whatever this warfare is that we that we up under. We surviving it to where. We still here. We still not bad people. We still not trying to figure out how to kill the world. We still not trying to figure out and get revenge on everybody. So it's a blessing. It's a blessing, and you know, in in his life on this journey, it's it's a it's a blessing to meet good people that a relationship can be built. You know what I'm saying? Somebody like you that's in your life, got your family and your kids and everything that you're taking care of from a whole another world than what I came from. But we connect and we interact and, and, and it's solid. You know what I'm saying? Ain't neither one of us trying to manipulate each other. Ain't neither one of us trying to lie to each other about some bullshit. Like, it's some real life stuff. Like, everything we just talked about now is some real life stuff. We ain't trying to, like, gas nobody up and and gas up, meaning, like, pump some pump up some lies and tell some fake stories and nothing. Like, it's just some real shit, real, real life shit. And I hope I hope if anybody hear it, I hope they get something good out of it because that's what I want to give. I want to give something good out of something. That's why I like your title of how humans work. You know what I'm saying? Because that's what this is all about. And that's another thing. I know we're wrapping it up, but that's another thing I want to say about my prison journey is, you know, I, I became in there like the, like the scientists in the world of only men as a man trying to figure out men. So I was in there trying to figure what makes men tick, what makes men do what they do. And in in the process of that, I learned what made me tick, what made me do what I do. Which is what, since you went there, what'd you learn? I learned, I learned to be humble. I learned to be humble and I learned, I learned to be positive, meaning productive and not destructive. And that's what I do. 
try to fix things instead of break things, meaning life, situations, relationships, all of that stuff. I learned how to fix instead of break. I learned how to build instead of destroy. And is that what makes you tick? Like that's what you found like, oh, if I, if I could flip that narrative, if I could flip that switch and I can create rather than just harm, destroy, whatever. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what makes me tick. If, if I can be faced with a situation and I can figure out a solution to it, I'm ticking at my, Uh (laughs) I see you smiling. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel you. I feel you. That's so beautiful. And I know there's more we could talk about and I, I imagine there will be more. Um, another opportunity for us to, for deepen in the conversation, but I want to say that your words just a minute ago around survival and being a black man and that I agree with you. I'm, I'm humbled by it, but also I love that it's not that you're just surviving, but you're naming it, you're speaking to it. It's getting out loud and it's the stories being told as you lived it from your eyes and from your experience. And I, I see you and I feel you and I appreciate you for it. And uh, um, I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for our friendship. I'm grateful for your honesty deeply. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining the show today. You can support the how humans work podcast by sharing the shows with your people, your family, your friends, your community, And you can keep it ad-free by making a donation to our Venmo at HHW underscore pod. I appreciate your support. All music is performed by the incredible Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. To learn more about our guest, the show, or Jeffrey's work helping people make peace with their human nature, you can go to howhumanswork.us.